The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, she is currently the Civic Poet of Seattle. And in some ways, the title is a suitable honor, but in other ways, it's somewhat limiting. For she's more than a poet. She's a visual artist, a maker of books and museum exhibits and films. Maybe we need to expand the definition of poet to include something more like artistic sensibility, or maybe we should just say she's an artist, with poetry just one of her forms. A creator in whatever medium inspires her creative spirit and serves her creative vision. She's also a podcast host, exploring the Asian American experience as reflected in cultural objects, in the podcast called 10,000 Things. And finally, she's our guest, Shinyi Pai, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. So glad you're here today. This is the History of Literature podcast, and we will have some literary news, I think, and our guest, Shinyi Pai, and maybe a last book, my last book as well. Let's see. How about Ross Benjamin, the translator of the Diaries of Franz Kafka for Shokin Books? Will he select something by Kafka for his last book, or will he turn elsewhere. Kafka. Hmm, I'm not sure that would be the right choice for me. That might throw me into the wrong frame of mind. Leave the world trembling in existential fear, but also chuckling a bit. So maybe that would be okay. Anyway, okay, here we go. Literary news. This is, okay, this is not, here's what we've got. This is not exactly literary, but there's a part of it that is, or at least I'll make it. So art world news, let's say except the actual news is from the world of science. This is a fairly exciting new discovery. Maybe you've heard about it. It it was predicted by no less a figure than Nikola Tesla himself, who thought there might be a way to draw electricity from air, harness the power of lightning, but on a small, constant scale. Did you even know there was electricity in air or energy in air? That there was renewable energy, clean energy, captured out of thin air, or at least the air, when it's humid. Sounds incredible, right? But guess what? Scientists have figured out how to do it. A limitless, free energy source surrounding us all the time, 24 hours a day. And the scientists have tapped into it. Not yet scalable, but maybe on its way. It's called high-grow electricity or air-derived electricity. And those brainiacs at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst have figured it out. I was reading about this in The Guardian. You take these tiny, tiny wires, nanowires, thinner than a human hair. or I don't even know how you make a wire that small, but smart people know. I guess they now have a disc. They developed this into a disc. It's the size of a thumbnail and one-fifth the thickness of a human hair. And they punch millions of holes into it. Nanopores, those holes are called. And then this little thing, this little slip of a fingernail-like thing you have, 
but even thinner and full of holes, draws the power out of the air because there's energy in atmospheric humidity. A disk that size can draw enough power to light one pixel, a single pixel on an LED screen, which admittedly isn't much. You could probably put an ant on a treadmill and generate that much power, but you can stack these disks to the point where a cube the size of a washing machine can power your whole house. That's not too bad. Better than having a washing machine full of ants on treadmills. Pretty impressive, I would say. There are, there are some issues with the materials needed, and apparently you have to keep these discs from getting contaminated by airborne microbes, but still. Even so, it would be nice to have these things humming along, right? A washing machine that can power your whole house. And guess what? You could build buildings out of the material, and then you don't even need a cube. You don't even need that washing machine size cube because the buildings can power themselves. The energy can come from your walls, which is pulling electricity out of the air with no need for transmission lines to and from a grid, all because... The, there's the energy is stored in the water molecules that are in the air. And here in swampy DC, my goodness, there's so much humidity. You feel sometimes like you're walking through an ocean, a hot ocean. Now, why is this literary news? Because those brilliant minds at Amherst discovered this by accident. <laughs> That's the best part of the story. Well, I mean, the potential impact on climate change and and uh, finding clean, renewable energy is, is probably the best part of the story. But the part I love the most about reading the story is that this happened by accident. I love when this happens in any realm of human activity in the arts, whether it's theater or film or painting or music. Here's, here's one from the world of music. Maybe my favorite accident, let's say you have a bottle left on top of an amp and it starts rattling and the musicians who are recording are really annoyed. They've got to start over until they realize that actually that bottle rattling on the amp is making the perfect sound and they want to keep it as part of the song. This happened to, surprise, surprise, the Beatles. Someone left a bottle of Blue Nun wine on the top of a Leslie speaker while they were recording George's song, Long, 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 for the White Album. Paul hit a certain note on the organ, and the bottle started rattling, and they loved the sound so much, they made sure to include it in the album version. There's other examples of this, too. A writer might mishear a phrase and think that's actually perfect. Or he or she might mistype a word and think, oh, wait, that's even better than what I had in mind. Just watched the Wham! documentary that just came out, Guilty Pleasure. <laughs> you 80s kids, my fellow 80s kids, take a <laughs> check out the Wham! documentary. That happened by accident, one of their most famous titles. Andrew, Andrew's known as the other guy in Wham, the not George Michael guy. George Michael was staying in his house, 
they were staying with their parents and and Andrew wrote a sign on his door that said wake me up before you go that's what he wanted to say and he said wake me up up and then he said he thought oh i wrote up up so then he added a second go so he said it said wake me up up before you go go well millions of records later <laughs> Wake me up before you go, go. It worked for George Michael. Luckily, he was songwriter at the height of his powers. May he rest in peace. Film is, is full of happy accidents like this. The light that shines at just the right moment. Maybe it's a, a flare surprising everyone, but it gives the scene a new dimension that works. Maybe someone flubs a line or improvises on the spot, but it's the perfect line. And famously, there's an effect in the movie In Cold Blood that was completely unplanned. A light was shining through a window onto the face of the killer who's describing his childhood. And as it happened, it was meant to be raining outside. So there was rain on the window and the raindrops were sliding down the glass and it gets reflected onto the face of the killer. So as he's wrestling with his conscience, sorry, but not really sorry, it appears that his face is full of tears, phantom tears. His instability and inner torment suddenly manifesting on his skin. It's as if we see inside him at that moment. This is him. This is his true self. His, his buried emotions are coming out. He's crying these shadow tears. His eyes are dry, but his soul is weeping. It was a complete accident. Neither the director nor the cinematographer planned to have that appearance on his face as he was giving that speech. But once it happened, they recognized it. The art was there. So for the scientists who made what might turn out to be a monumental planet-changing discovery. Well, they weren't even trying to see if they could pull electricity out of the air. That wasn't even their project. They were trying to create a sensor that could detect humidity in air. That was it. Just detect it, not harness its power. And in fact, the sensor that they had devised was powered by electricity with a standard operation plug. And a student whose job it was to run the sensor so they could monitor this thing, forgot to plug it in. But it worked anyway. What was happening? What was happening when they realized they were getting a charge, even though it wasn't plugged in? That was a mystery. <laughs> Imagine... Imagine if that happened to you. So that you'd think it was a, a ghost or God, some kind of intervention, right? Well, it turns out they had these tubes, these nanotubes, wide enough for an airborne water molecule to enter at one end, but narrow enough that the water was bumping around inside the tube. And these bumps up and down were creating a kind of charge. And the charge changed one end of the tube to be different from the other. So the thing ended up like a battery with a positive and a negative connected together and electrons flowing between, all from the activity of that water molecule. This 
It's interesting science. It's invention. If you think of a Tesla or an Einstein, the guys with minds as creative as artists, as creative as George Harrison or Paul McCartney, let's say. There's also the studio lackey who left a bottle of wine on the app. And the student who forgot to plug in the device. Imagine <laughs> that, poor, that poor guy. Oh, oh crap, I forgot to plug this thing in. But wait, what? <laughs> we just changed the world? Imagine if your claim to fame was that you once forgot a bottle of wine in the studio and it wound up heard by millions of listeners who bought the White Album. Sometimes we are in control of the muse and sometimes we are at the muse's whim. Even on days when you're not at your creative peak, show up, hang around and see what happens. You might be lucky enough to make a terribly foolish mistake at exactly the right time. And when that magic happens, you will hopefully be alert and clever enough to notice. Shinyi Pai is next. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Xinyi Pai, who is the author of 11 books and counting, and the winner of numerous awards and fellowships. She's also currently the Civic Poet of Seattle. Xinyi joins us today to discuss her numerous works and her podcast, 10,000 Things, for which she serves as the writer, producer, and host. Xinyi Pai, welcome to the History of Literature. Thanks for hosting me, Jack. So let's start with your childhood. Where did you grow up and how did reading and the arts fit in? I grew up in a small city in Southern California called Riverside, specifically mm. an even smaller town called High Grove. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a very culturally isolating place, primarily mixed race, brown and black. Uh, community members, very working class, and 
my family was the only family of Asians there until I was pretty much in sixth grade. Mm. So it's pretty isolating uh, to be Asian in California, but not near an Asian American community. My parents were immigrants from Taiwan and reading and literature were a tremendous part of my early life. I spent a lot of time at the public library, which was less than a mile from my house and really developed deep relationships with the librarians who were always recommending books for my mother and I to read and discovered a very early love of reading and a kind of a imaginative escape, I think, from the realities of everyday life through my love for literature and eventually what developed into a deep love for writing. Mm. And were there any authors or poets who were particularly important to you when you were young? Um, when I was young, you know, I, I think that there was a lot of the kind of authors that you encounter in your American literature classes who, you know, were poets like Walt Whitman and Emily mm. Dickinson. Mm -hmm. But I think independently of that, I discovered the beat writers when I was in my teenage years. And, you know, it's, it's a funny gateway into connecting to Asian culture and religion. But that's what a lot of what the beat writers did in um, writing about and elevating their relationships to Buddhism and Eastern religion. Mm. So those poets like Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, Gary Snyder were yeah. significant to me for my teenage years. And I would say that through them, I also became aware of the romantic poets like, you know, William Blake and John Clare, and uh, also a lot of the French poets like Arthur Rimbaud, quite important to me from an early age, and Rainer Rilke was uh, a, book, mm. a, a poet whose work was given to me by uh, an older friend, uh, particularly his uh, Letters to a Young Poet collection, which was really important to me as a, a young artist trying to find their way and to understand their relationship to their craft and their practice. Mm -hmm. So early on, not a lot of connection to Asian American writers or literature just because of the nature of what's taught in school but these early writers for me were really important to my own sensibilities and development. Mm -hmm. And so given those authors, I'm guessing that we've gotten beyond sixth grade now, and we're talking about you in high school and, and probably college. Mm -hmm. Did you Were you writing at this point? Did you know that that was something you wanted to do? Yeah, by the time I got to college, I was definitely writing poetry. And in my uh, last year, of university, I was taking uh, poetry writing workshops at Boston University with, with students of people who are in the creative writing program that studied with people like Robert Pinsky or Derek Walcott. And so I studied with a poet named Deborah Bennett, who actually brought into the classroom a lot of poetry and translation from Spanish language and Japanese. And so was able to discover a wider range of poets. And simultaneous to that, I was taking Eastern religion classes that looked very much at the convergence of the sacred and the literary. So, you know, poetic texts uh, by the Tibetan Buddhist saint Milarepa mm. um, and then poets who were monks and nuns and just, I think, a different model of poetry that came through ancient, sometimes anonymous poets writing about the sacred and that kind of writing and textual, I think, encounter was very formative for me during those college years and kind of 
steering me in a direction that eventually led me to study writing and poetics at the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics at Naropa University. Mm, right. So one of the things that really stands out is very striking about your writing career is how many different forms you've worked with. And and I shouldn't even mm-hmm. say writing career. I'll just call it artistic career. And it seems like maybe the Beats gave you some of that. You know, One of the things I associate with them is just their willingness to put themselves out there and, and experiment with different things and, and not really follow rules and kind of privilege mm-hmm. the the experience of being an artist and the impulse to be an artist more than to be locked into a certain tradition or a a preconceived notion of what a novel should be or what poetry should be or just what a writer's life should be like. I'm wondering, do you, do you look at them as kind of inspirational figures just in terms of being a beatnik or a bohemian or a, a willingness to challenge kind of the conventional forms and the conventional careers in writing? Well, I think what was very interesting about the writers of that era is that they participated in very rich artistic communities. So Mm -hmm. the beat poets, you know, there was a rich intersection with like jazz and music and like at Naropa, Allen Ginsberg would, you know, sing the songs and poetry of William Blake with like, uh, you know, band members from the Fugs and you know, yeah. when I think about like the New York School of Poetry, which has also been very important to my sensibilities, people like Frank O'Hara, Frank O'Hara as a curator for, uh, you know, what was it, the Museum of Modern Art, had very deep relationships with visual artists that were always making interesting work in their studios. And there was that kind of cross the fertilization of like creative processes where there was this kind of intermingling and engagement and conversations between peers that were masters of their own particular discipline and craft. And so after I was at Naropa, I actually finished my master's degree, uh, got my master's of fine arts at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, which I think was a similar setting or somewhat maybe like utopian or interdisciplinary to my own experience in that here I was, a poet embedded amongst all these other kinds of artists in which I could be in conversation through the artwork itself about artistic process. So I think that the kinds of communities that I've been a part of have often kind of encouraged these cross-disciplinary conversations. And I think that also this tendency for me is very old because I, I come from a family in which my mother was and is a visual artist. And mm. so going to museums with her... And looking and thinking about her work, like it's always been a really deep part of being able to see her clearly and being able to sort of communicate across problems of language and uh, cultural loss. Mm. Do you have in mind uh, a project? I'm wondering how the projects come to mind. Are you thinking of the impact on the audience, on the reader or the museum goer? Or or are you thinking of the content and that suggests a particular form? Or are you thinking of the form and you're thinking of how you want to fill it? Or how does how does that come to mind? Yeah, I always think about the content first mm-hmm. and the things that I want to make and then I think a lot of other things fall into place around that, whether this thing is going to be built as a book or, you know, I have this one project that I did where I printed parts of a poem on the ripening skins of uh, apples in an heirloom apple orchard. Mm. Uh, that poem, that installation 
was really inspired by the idea of writing an alphabet poem for my son, who at that time was less than one and beginning to learn and acquire language. And I wanted to make language very visible, visual and beautiful um, to him as he was encountering language. And so I think that for me, the image, the idea, the story, the emotional feeling, that is the thing that I usually start with. And then from there, kind of just exploring the different angles and facets of what that thing asked to be, um, then I make it. So sometimes a poem is a visual piece that's like on a Viewmaster reel as a kind of like lo-fi animation, or maybe because for this period of time when my son was young, he's really fascinated with the moving image, I'm going to make an animated poem that is projected on the back of a building at night, you know? Mm. So I, I think that I, I have content that I want to make, and then there are a set of strategies that I can choose from to make that work. And I may not always be well-versed or conversant in those strategies, but there are certain strategies that I am conversant enough to be able to talk about and direct towards what I want a thing to be. And then there are definitely specific disciplines that I am very deeply invested in, and that includes, uh, I think, most close to my heart, bookmaking Mm -hmm. and singing. Yeah, mm. those are the things that I am no means like, you know, a master or an expert of, but I have, I think, a deep investment in cultivating that ability within myself to move closer to just perfecting those, those disciplines for myself. Yeah. Mm. Now, does the marketplace play any role here? It, a lot of the things you've talked about are, are things that are not necessarily known for lucrative sales or, or anything like that. But on the other hand, I guess it does open up a kind of world of fellowships and residencies. And, you know, do you work on commission or do you work for uh, in order to enter a particular prize contest or anything like that? Or how has the how have you been able to make a career out of this? Well, I mean, very few poets just make poetry. They often do all kinds of things to pay the bills, and I'm definitely in that group. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, I currently work for the municipal government, writing interpretive signage for parks. <laughs> you yeah. know, that's kind mm-hmm. of my current day job. And for about 20 years, I was a public events producer and curator for organizations like Atlas Obscura, as well as museums and cultural producing um, venues uh, in various cities in Dallas and Seattle. Um, so there are a lot of different ways to make your living as a writer and to use creativity and language in the work that you do every day. For me, I worked a lot for a while in philanthropy and fundraising, and I think it's about applying those skills of language towards something that feels to me close enough to a community of practice that is adjacent to what I do as an artist. But I think that in the last five years, there has been a lot of um, foundation support philanthropic support for my work as a writer. You know, things like being a civic poet or a poet laureate come with small budgets that enable the ability to build bolder and more exciting projects. And then I fundraise to build or make the other things that I want to do. A lot of my work has been traditionally self-funded by the various side hustles that I have. If I want to make a thing and I don't have a grant for it, I'm going to make it anyways and I'm going to pay for it. Or um, I'm going to have income from teaching some workshops or doing some speaking gigs and that funnels right back into the art projects that I want to make. And so my work for a long time was very regional and I think sort of structured for 
small audiences like things that I want to make. I, I do sometimes document them, but they're durational. They go away. They aren't necessarily about selling pieces associated with the artifact or the trace of what the thing was that was made. But I think that this question of market audience is an interesting and important one for writers and artists. Uh, poets will never make a lot of money selling their books. But I, I think that in this evolution of my artistic career now, I am thinking a lot about how to reach more people, mm. larger audiences. And that is particularly relevant to the podcast that I've made, 10,000 Things, because that is a story series about Asian American community members that I wanted to have the largest possible reach beyond what I have been able to kind of generate by way of like a poetry audience. And so that has been especially important to me because they aren't just my stories. They're the stories of my community. Mm. Okay, well, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and we'll ask more questions about the podcast. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're back with Shinyi Pai. Shinyi, you mentioned your new podcast, 10,000 Things. What is the podcast about? The podcast is a series of stories about the Asian American diasporic experience, often focuses on stories from artists and activists and community members, primarily from the Pacific Northwest. And I, I center the kind of approach to the storytelling on an object a personal object that belongs to the guest or the storyteller with the idea that that object can be a reflection of both personal and cultural values mm. and almost become kind of like a totem or an heirloom of cultural and personal values that are being asked to be carried on um, and carried with. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And originally the name was the blue suit. So maybe we could use that as an example of how an object might uh, take on some of these cultural resonances. What inspired that title? Yeah, so the blue suit is an object that belonged to Congressman Andy Kim from New Jersey. On January 6th, the day of the insurrection, Congressman Kim was photographed on the Capitol Rotunda at midnight. Uh, picking up garbage after rioters had been cleared from the building and he was wearing this bright blue suit, a J. Crew suit that he had bought on a sale rack and the suit he wore he wanted to wear to the inauguration. And it was such a striking picture that captured the imaginations of so many people, this image of a public servant, Asian American man, humbly sort of picking up the ruins of something that had gone terribly wrong that was caused by other people acting badly. And, you know, that image really stayed with me for months and months. Mm -hmm. And eventually what I learned was that the Smithsonian Museum asked Congressman Kim to donate his suit as an artifact of January 6th that could tell a different part of the story of that day. And it was such a, I don't know, an enchanting, beautiful gesture that I knew that I wanted to do something with that story, whether it was write a poem or to develop it into some other kind of story or essay, and that blue suit became the namesake of the podcast itself. Mm. It is, I mean, it, as you're talking about it, it kind of brings tears to my eyes, because 
It is mm. we have so many photographs and so many objects that tell of atrocities or the horrors of things in history and the idea yeah. that the Smithsonian recognized that this would be a way of talking about recovery and about commitment to yeah. democracy and the ideas of the republic and about diversity and about the 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 great american experiment that here was a guy who um cared that deeply about what was supposed to be happening in the capital and what the capital was supposed to represent that he yeah. was uh even though he held this vaunted position and you know certainly mm -hmm. it's it's not like he was employed there as someone who was supposed to collect trash but it was important yeah. for him to clean it up it, it just uh it is a beautiful yeah. i mean you could see where you could devote a podcast episode to it and where it could inspire yeah. an entire name for a series of a podcast yeah absolutely it spoke to me so deeply of personal leadership as it's expressed in ways that aren't always recognized yeah Mm. Now you've expanded that to 10,000 things, mm -hmm. which means uh, hopefully we can look forward to many episodes of the podcast. <laughs> I don't <laughs> know if that's meant to be literal. Why the number 10,000? Uh, a lot of different reasons. The, the station asked me if I would consider renaming the the podcast uh, when we decided to do a second season. Mm -hmm. And that was largely for reasons, I think, of discoverability and audience confusion about the kind of right. enigmatic quality of like the blue suit, because I think as a poet, I argue for the most obtuse, obscure thing because it has the poetic value. But does that translate to a podcast audience? And are they going to think that the blue suit is a series about democracy? And also, how does it say anything about being Asian? Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. They helped me to understand the rationale of why it might need to evolve. And I felt, open to that, certainly. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of spitballed a lot of ideas. I had this brain dump of like all these things that could be called like weekend Asians or off-brand Asians, which are all um, kind of phrases and terms that I really relate to. But then I think at a certain point, I was just spinning out different kinds of ideas and symbols. And I landed on this idea of 10,000 things. 10,000 is a very common term in both Chinese and Japanese culture that speaks to like the many or the infinite or the vast, which felt like a really beautiful metaphor for the different ways of being Asian. And then this word things, it, it felt like it was close enough to like artifacts or objects or heirlooms or the thing that I wanted to continue with. And so it became 10,000 things. And then when we were like quietly testing it out with some of my peers and coworkers at the station who happened to be Asian American, it's like totally landing. It was mm. like this wink, this yeah. wink and this nod to like Asians and Asian American culture and to kind of like my sort of personal cultural orientation. And so it felt really good. And that's where we are now. Yeah, I love it. I think it's a great title. Uh, it, and it does Thank seem you. to have a kind of resonance. It, it seems like it's got like a, a historical element, but also a real zeroing in on the objects and a, as a way of organizing mm -hmm. the podcast episodes. Now, I've read a description of it that describes it as a vibrant, diverse and bittersweet celebration of mm -hmm. Asian America. And I'm mostly mm -hmm. interested in that word bittersweet. What makes the celebration <laughs> bittersweet? It, it's really funny. Like when we were on the second season, my VP of content, my, my director of content was like, Shinyi, we got to get away from the bittersweet and like this melancholy, you know, <laughs> kind of like, you know, like tendency, you know, which as a poet, I feel like that runs.
runs deep through my blood. Yeah, and, um, right. That's the know, best like, emotion. I, I like my skies to have some clouds, and I like uh, <laughs> chocolate yeah. to have a little bitterness and bite to it and, and everything. I like everything to be a little bit mixed like that. Yeah, but what I'll say is that when I was beginning to work on season two, I read Susan Cain's book on The Bittersweet, um, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. I don't know if you've read mm. that book. Susan Cain wrote this excellent book on introverts called Quiet, which was really um, powerful for me to sort of reframe my experiences as an introvert. But The Bittersweet <laughs> is is just about, yeah, these stories of melancholy and these artworks and just how they can imbue life with a sense of meaning and there's even this really beautiful test uh, that you can take that's available on NPR that is like the bittersweet scale to kind of see where you fall on a scale of one to 10 of bittersweetness. I scored 2.9. Mm. So yeah, like lowest of like anybody I know, I think. But I think what I'll say is that I feel like <laughs> in the West, there is a strong happiness bias and this kind of tendency towards, I think, what now is being sometimes described as almost like a toxic positivity and it flattens out the complexity of experience or, you know, the, the notion that a, a lot of experience may come through the experience of trauma. So there is this complexity of the bittersweetness that is part of all the stories that I tell. Joy is the other side of melancholy or, or suffering. And so I feel like these things are intricately coupled together in my own lived experience. And that's going to be reflective of whatever I make. Mm. Do you associate it particularly with the experience of being Asian American, or do you think this is you've got a, a Chekhovian soul or or something that it, it isn't necessarily related to the experience of being Asian American, but it's sort of a an outlook on life? It is an outlook on life. It is, I think, very universal. But I think when we talk about um, the Asian diaspora of people who had who have had to leave the countries that they come from and the cultural loss and the loss of identity that comes with that and the traumas that come with that, there is going to be a bittersweetness that imbues some of that experience, mm -hmm. the idea of what has had to have been given up in order to be in a place where you may have more opportunity. These are not simple black and white things and they have their impacts. So is it exclusively you know, Asian American is all Asian American experience. They're sweet. No. Um, but I think diasporic immigrant experience and that of their descendants is very complex. Mm -hmm. And when I was talking about Andy Kim and kind of imagining the blue suit, there was a lot we could have added to that story itself that probably would have mm -hmm. given it a background that would have been much more focused on the challenges that had been overcome or the mm -hmm. negative experiences that had been dealt with and probably even some people's reaction to the photograph becoming so famous and what it mm -hmm. represented would probably have some uh, of that bitterness associated with it. So it is kind yeah. of, I like how you mentioned that is it's the complexity, which is mm -hmm. what every good historical or, or cultural examination would want to capture. Four flavors, right? It's mm, not just mm -hmm. sweet and salty, right? But there's bitter and sour, and all of these qualities lead to kind of like a balanced taste or this complexity of flavor that is ultimately better for you or more fulfilling. Yeah. Yeah. Right.
So I've also read that the podcast serves to challenge us all to reimagine stories of the past and future. And I was wondering if you have an example of a, a story from the past that you found to be worth revisiting and that you've explored in the podcast. Well, when I think of season one, uh, I did an episode with a sound artist named Paul Kikuchi. He worked for a time in a Japanese-American community archive that uh, collected together uh, vinyl records that had been um, saved and salvaged from Japanese-Americans who uh, were, were incarcerated during World War II. So I think it's that story in particular as being a way of, I think, reimagining the story of the past. What Paul did uh, and talks about in that episode is that he took these materials from an archive, which unless you have researchers in an archive that are engaging with those materials, that, that material is not entirely lost, but it's not activated. So what he did was he curated records and sounds from, from that archive, and he put a telephone record player in a public setting in the Panama Tea Room here in Seattle, and he created this listening station where people can walk into that historic space and they can put a record on the turntable and they can listen to the sounds of the past and to reactivate them and to bring them alive again. Mm-hmm. I think that the stories around the Japanese incarceration are are interesting. You know, the Japanese Americans at that time, they had to hide or destroy their records because it could mark them as being very Japanese. And so, you know, these record collections were being lost, and yet some people saved them. And in this way, that was like an act of resistance in in holding on to one's identity. You know, these are tales, this particular tale was a tale of historical atrocity and things that happened to other people that should never happen. But there was this, I think, part of the story that was about what you preserve and take from that history what you incorporate into, for Paul as a contemporary composer, taking those sounds from the past and then relating to them and building off of them to make new sonic compositions. I feel like that is a way in which we can engage with the past imaginatively. Mm. And you mentioned earlier the podcast was a way of maybe reaching an audience that would be beyond an audience that could come to see one of your exhibits or something like that. Does it also let you be a creator in a way that other creative mediums might not? How's the process been for you? Have you enjoyed putting the episodes together? Or does it feel more like journalism or something than art? not journalism. I think when I came into it, I thought it would be like reported writing somehow. Um, But it's more like personal essay writing, but it's not like personal essay writing because it's for radio. So it is very ear oriented. And the the clips and the durational bits um, have to be really tight and concise in the way that poems are. So it almost feels like second nature for me as a poet to write in these forms for the voice and has been, I think, very powerful for me to explore a longer form that still can have aspects of the poetic and associative leaping, but demands of me a clarity of writing and a vulnerability of voice and disclosure of uh, personal experience that makes me in my written voice and spoken voice more human. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, when you merge these art forms together, you mm-hmm. describe, I think you were talking about the, your visual work 
and your poetry and and I think the question was maybe something about do you prefer one or the other or is one better than the other does it do you think one gives you access to more than the other and you said you viewed it as more complementary of one another rather than oppositional and is that I mean I was curious about that because it sounded like what you were saying is that the art forms in combination were working to let you go to deeper places than you might be able to reach otherwise? Well, I, I think that my my creative practice has this kind of fluidity to it. And when I get stuck in one form or practice, it's really beautiful to be able to pull from the tools that exist for me in these other disciplines, whether it's composing a photograph or thinking about the way that a thing sounds or feels in the body. I feel like all of these kinds of tools and methods are ways for me to get into the language of the thing that I want to create. Language not necessarily being the language of words, but just the language of what wants to be expressed. So in this way, they are not practices that are in competition with one another. They are a set of tools that I think are tremendously useful for me. And I am more advanced in some tools versus places in which I have had maybe less experience. Like I don't have as much experience as like a, a book binder or a letterpress printer, but there are these kinds of practices that have helped me to see and understand my work on a page or in a structure in a different way. And so I think what I have wanted from these tools is to be able to imagine more than anything else. You know, it isn't necessarily mastery, but I think the ability to imagine in a different language that gives me more flexibility and fluidity, which actually feels completely consistent with having a very kind of like intersectional identity of being many things. Mm. Do you have any issues of collaborating? Does that you know, working on the podcast, you're fully in control and you have guests who are, have input as well. Do you do you find yourself kind of wishing that you were back in the world where the finished product was going to all come from you? Or have you enjoyed the the experiences of working with others and having their input be part of the finished product? I, I love collaborating with others and have for like 20 years. I've worked like with musicians and dancers and, you know, bookmakers and photographers and choreographers and people from all different kinds of disciplines than my own. And so as a writer, it can often be a very lonely and isolating practice of writing on the page. And if I ever want to feel like I have control of the page, I can always write a poem. I think the beauty of making a podcast is that I have an amazing team of a producer and an editor who guide me towards being a better writer and storyteller. And I think for myself, as somebody who's deeply invested in community, listening to what my community is saying to me, I want to create the stories that really make my guests feel seen and heard and uplifted. And so for me, that kind of editorial process of taking and listening to feedback is incredibly important to me. I may not always agree with what's being said to me. I work with a team where I am the only Asian American or person of color. And so I think sometimes I may have to advocate strongly or contextualize for why I want something to be explained culturally the way that I have presented it, which only I can 
say or know because I am a member of the community that I am. And so I think that makes me have to uh, work very hard to communicate. And it also requires a certain kind of open-mindedness to to hear what's being said because, yeah, maybe sometimes I am telling the story for a non-white listener at times, but I'm making these stories for radio. And so it has to be for the broadest possible audience. So I'm always going for cultural specificity alongside a universality that can touch many people's lives. So for listeners who are thinking about checking it out, which guests are mm-hmm. you excited about and what can people who head over to 10,000 Things and, and want to sample the podcast, what can they look forward to hearing? Yeah, well, so this week we released an episode with Sean Wong, who's like a, the godfather of Asian American literature. He edited this incredible anthology, i.e., in like the 1970s and we have this wonderful conversation about his relationship to John Okada's novel Nono Boy and how he published it and copyrighted it and uh, uh, just you know his discovery of Asian American literature at a time when he was going to college when he was told that there was no Asian American literature Mm. so that is a very very powerful conversation about forms of literary activism or activism in general so I, I love his story The last episode of the season is a conversation with Alice Wong, who is a disability rights advocate uh, who had this incredible podcast called Disability Visibility Project for a long time. And Alice is this intriguing individual and story in that last summer she had a medical crisis that resulted in her actually losing the use of her voice. And so in order for her to do this interview and in order for her to communicate in life, she actually uses a text-to-voice app that generates an artificial cyborg voice, which she uses this one kind of middle Western flat affect accent named Heather. Mm -hmm. And so we have this incredible conversation back and forth uh, in which she talks to me in the voice of this Heather character or, or, you know, voice that she's chosen for herself. So that's an episode that I think really speaks beautifully to the larger project of 10,000 Things, which is about objects, but it's also about abstraction and the idea of the poetic and what we think about as objects. So super excited about, you know, those episodes, but I'm also incredibly proud of season one. Mm. And all the stories that I had with amazing artists like performance artist Anita Ali, glass artist Etsuko Ichikawa, and rock indie star, um, indie rock star Tomo Nakayama, who also wrote the music for the show and talks to me in his episode about um, the, the isolation and loneliness of pandemic and watching Midnight Diner and cooking Japanese food and what cooking has in common with playing music. Mm. Wow. Well... The podcast you mentioned was Disability Visibility Project, and the podcast that you host is called 10,000 Things. Shinyi Pai, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you so much for the conversation, Jack. Mm, Wasn't that great? And finally, we hear from Ross Benjamin. After I spoke to him about his new translation of the Diaries of Franz Kafka, I asked him a special question. I am joined now by Ross Benjamin, translator of Franz Kafka, who spent eight years working on the recent translation of the Diaries of Franz Kafka. Ross, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. 
You can either name a book that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. This is a really impossible question to answer. <laughs> but uh, so the way I decided to take the question is um, of, of any books I've read recently, which one would I be satisfied to never read another book again? Mm, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I re- several books ago, but still fairly recently, I read Daniel Duranda for the first time. Oh, yeah. The, the fullness I felt at the end of, of that book, the satisfaction that you could have at the end of a book. I, I can't imagine I can't imagine any satisfaction at the end of a novel as that could exceed the satisfaction I felt at the end of, of that novel. Yeah. I could be satisfied with as my final book if it had to be. Right. OK, well, two things. First of all, it's interesting that you didn't choose Kafka. Yeah, you know, I felt too easy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And the second thing is, I was wondering with a book like that, and this is starting to get a little morbid, but it's a morbid question. Would you want to finish the book and close the cover and then drift off into the great beyond? Or would you want to you know, go to sleep with a chapter to go or or somewhere two thirds of the way through and just have that feeling of, oh, I'll get to read more of this tomorrow. And then maybe you pass away in your sleep. It sounds like for you with Daniel Deronda, uh, it's worth getting to the end and feeling like that's it. I've I've wrapped it up and and I feel good and satisfied about where I am at this point. Mm-hmm. But now that you bring it up, that other idea is almost a kind of Shahrazad kind of idea. Yeah, right. I feel like there's still <laughs> more to go and keep it going, which, of course, the, the finality of the question is what makes it really difficult yeah. question. So yeah. my other question that I asked myself was whether I would want to read a book that really helped me come to terms with, with mortality or one that was mm. more more felt really enlivening and made me feel very alive for the last time. So I think I went more with the latter Um a book that just makes me feel the, the fullness and richness of life. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. Oh, that's beautiful. Ross Benjamin, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, Daniel Deronda. That's the next one up for all you Middlemarch fans and you Mill on the Floss fan, Mill on the Flossers. What's that old line? I'd rather have a bottle in front of me than a frontal lobotomy. Well, I suppose I'd rather mill on the floss than floss on the mill, if you know what I mean. But in any case, I'd rather be reading George Eliot than doing either of those things. And it sounds like Ross Benjamin is right there with me. Daniel Deronda. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Shin Yi Pai for joining me. Her podcast is called 10,000 Things, available now everywhere. And my thanks to Ross Benjamin for stopping by. His book is called The Diaries of Franz Kafka. I'm busy reading away. Lots of good stuff in the works, people. We're going to have a show on Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald, I believe, coming up this fall. Late summer, fall, a follow-up show on Tender is the Night. You'll hear why Mike Palindrome has read this book six times, according to that log he keeps of all the books he has ever read. We'll have a legend from the world of Shakespeare and a special look at fairy tales with an expert in those. Zora Neale Hurston is still on the calendar, as is Martin Amos. Rest in peace. And Giorgio... Vasari. So stay tuned for all of those. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.